You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. This is our second to last week in the whole story, but this is the beginning of the year. We're doing a different book of the Bible every week, an overview sermon. We go to the moon next week, so we'll take a break. Christmas on the moon, four and six next week. Who's going to be there? Who's fired up for it? Okay, here's, here's the deal. I know it's Thanksgiving weekend, which is rare. Actually, never, not, not rare. It's never happened before. And it's like, why in the world are we doing it then? And the reason is that's the only time we could get in this year. Uh, so what we're asking you to do is just come back. Like, just please come back to town. If you're in Orlando for Thanksgiving or wherever it might be, drive back. You can be here by four. Uh, you can be here by six. I was joking with someone. I was like, pretend it's like a football game or your daughter's dance recital or something like that. And, and let's make it back in town in time to be a part of Christmas on the moon. And the week after that, we'll be back here. And we'll be in the book of Revelation uh, to close it all out uh, for our whole story series. I hope it's been a good experience for you overall. Uh, I know it's been for me. Uh, I've learned more about the Bible, I think, in the last like maybe year than I even did in seminary. <laughs> so much time in every book of the Bible, and it's been a really good experience. I hope that you at least know the whole story of the scriptures now and how at all points ultimately to salvation found in Jesus Christ. So I hope to see you at the moon next week. I'm excited for it. It's probably one of my favorite services of the year. Uh, we're going to kick off Christmas season in Tallahassee with Christmas on the moon. And another thing about it being early this year all y'all decorate early already anyways now, right? Like y- y'all put Christmas trees up the day after Halloween, let's be honest. Uh, so it's a perfect timing uh, for us to get rolling. Let's pray together, then we'll jump in. Father, we are thankful for your word. Thankful to be together as a church family. We lift up the moon to you next week. We ask you to speed up those services. Allow the friends we invite to say yes and have their minds open and their hearts open and their ears open and their eyes open to see who you are. Lord, and what you have done for them in Christ, their need, their desperate need for Jesus, the one who reconciles us to you, who cleanses us from our sin, who forgives us. He is the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Let that be what we proclaim every week, but Lord, allow people to know and hear next week. I ask the same for this morning, that you keep the enemy out of this place, out of our city, that you, be, you speak to me this morning. And Lord, I also ask you with all the churches in our city, as we know, we're not alone as we gather today. We lift all this up in the name of Jesus. Amen. First John, Ray Van Ness, who's a commentator, said this. In these letters, we see the great apostle John functioning as a shepherd. He's teaching, consoling, urging, comforting, and challenging his people so they may have joy and might know, those are linked together, that they may have joy and as a result might know that they have eternal life. God wants us to know we have eternal life. And the understanding of assurance is not to scare us. It's not to hold it over our heads. I've heard evangelists before go, if you don't know the exact moment, the exact time, the exact date that you became a Christian, you might not be. Well, my standing with Jesus is not based on my memory. It's based on what Christ has accomplished for us. And God wants us to have assurance of salvation. Why? Because it leads to joy. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, a pastor in London uh, back in the mid-20th century, assurance is not essential to salvation. It's not our confidence that saves us, but it is essential to the joy of salvation. What Christ accomplished for us is the source of our salvation, not our assurance, but what Christ accomplished for us should lead us to assurance. And joy is found there. I mean, think about it. If you don't have assurance of salvation, how can you find joy? Because every day it's, have I done enough? Do I remember enough? Have I gone to church enough? Have I done enough good deeds? Have I said enough right words? Always on edge as a Christian? That's not who we are saved to be. 
and what we are saved to do. God wants us to know that we have eternal life. Wants us to be confident, not in ourselves, but in Jesus and what he's done for us. I do believe that God wants us, my leader used to tell me, Karen Knox, when I was in middle school, that he wants us to know that we know that we know that we're saved. I remember that to this day, all these years later. God wants us to know that we know that we know that we're saved. However, that knowledge should be in Christ and not in ourselves. First John was written to encourage faithful, struggling believers. They were holding on to the truth and to help them persevere while others have been taken in by false teachings. And this perseverance is going to come in the context of assurance, of knowing who they were in Christ. If I had to give you a theme verse, it'd probably be the second to last verse of the whole letter. It's five chapters where John said this, and we know, there's that word, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. God wants us to know who he is so we may know the true one. That's why Jesus has come to show us who God is. We are in the true one. Our union with Christ matters. You become a Christian, you become one with Christ that is in his son, Jesus Christ. That's where it's found. He is the true God. Like this baby in a manger we're about to celebrate, it's gonna be decorations in so many people's homes. That baby is the actual true God. And in him is eternal life. Then the next verse, very last verse of the book, is our response to that truth. Little children. Because everything I just wrote to you about Jesus is true. Guard yourselves from idols. Because they are not the true God. They are a false God. In the Old Testament, it actually mocks idol worship. You'll see things like they have eyes, these statues you worship, but they can't see. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have ears, but they can't hear. They're not real gods. Why are you pledging your lives to them? He says, little children, based on our assurance of who Jesus is, guard yourselves from the worship of anything else. And he begins his letter like this. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, and this eyewitness testimony matters, but we have seen with our eyes what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed. We have seen it, and we testify. We've seen Jesus risen from the grave. We're not just passing down stories. We're firsthand account here, and we declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. But we have seen and heard. We also declare to you. We want you to know this, to understand this. We declare it to you so you may also have fellowship with us. This fellowship is based on an agreement of who Jesus is and what he's done. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things. Listen to these words. I love this. We're writing these things so our joy may be complete. We can understand and grasp and believe and have confidence in who Jesus is and what God has accomplished for us in Christ by his grace that we actually really can have our joy complete. How many people are on a quest to make their joy complete? They might not use those exact words, that exact wording, but they're on a mission to make sure they always have joy. But what they're doing is they're confusing that word with happiness. They're on a happiness quest when instead we should be on a joy quest. And that joy does not know circumstances. Happiness is totally bound by circumstances, 100% dependent upon it. And I don't think we shouldn't desire to be unhappy. I'm not claiming we should desire misery. But happiness changes by the day. And you can over and over again hear the messaging, just do more of what makes you happy. You can hear that over and over again, but that's really dependent upon you. If our joy is going to be complete, that's what lasts, then it must be an understanding our assurance in Jesus. 
He says, if, let's be clear here, here's what it looks like to be in the fellowship, to know the true one. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him, as in if we claim to be Christians, claim to be believers, and yet we walk in darkness, as we still live as if who we used to be before we came to Christ, before we received the, the truth of who Jesus was and by faith believed the good news of his death and resurrection, repented of our sins, if we still walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. In other words, if we claim to be Christians but act like we're not and live like we're not, we're lying because we're probably not Christians. It's not an assurance issue. It's a you're not really saved to begin with issue. It's not that you lost your salvation. It's that you never had it in the first place. He says you, can, you cannot be in fellowship with the one and true holy God while making sin a consistent pattern in your life. It doesn't add up. It just doesn't make sense. Let me say it again. You can't be in fellowship with the one and true holy God while making sin a consistent pattern in your life. But he gives us good news. And verse 9 was written to believers. It's actually not an evangelistic passage. It's written to Christians. If we confess our sins, he says, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That we don't have to fear that God's gonna reject us when we sin. Christ was rejected. In other words, Christ was punished for us so that we may have life. He died as our substitute, so now we're right with God. So our job is not to fear confessing to God, but in a relationship, in fellowship, to confess our sins because he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And then he talks about the issue here, whether we're gonna walk with God or walk with the world, be in light or be in darkness, is gonna come down to our loves. What is it really and ultimately that we love? Where do our affections go? And he says, do not love the world or the things in the world, as in idols. If anyone loves the world, it's contrast. The love of the Father is not in him. We can conclude you're still in darkness. You haven't received God's love in Christ. And he goes, here's the desires of the world. Here's what we're tempted towards. Here's what's gonna pull us. And Christians must be careful not to be ruled by them because they're contrary to what our affections should be towards, which is Jesus. We should not love these things of the world, for we live our lives according to our loves. We live our lives according to our loves. The choices you make for your family are often based on your love. You make financial purchases based on what you love. You make time commitments based on what you love. What we love is going to control much of our lives. We should not love the things of this world, he says, for we live according to our loves. So what are they? For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, just like 1 Peter, reminds us how fleeting it is. The world with its lust is passing away. The things I lust for, the things I desire, the things I crave, they're all passing away but the one who does the will of God, which is to remain in Christ, that person remains forever. He says, lust of the flesh, which is I want to feel that. I want to feel accepted. I want to feel fulfilled. I want to feel happiness. So I'm going to believe the lies that I'm going to go around God, not to him for the things I'm looking for, that there's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. What this comes down to is an issue of assurance. I'm actually not believing that Jesus is the one he said he was and that he is the greatest treasure, that he is the greatest joy. I want to feel that. Lust of the flesh. 
And John says, that's passing away, that's fleeting. It's the one who does the will of God who lives forever. The next one is the lust of the eyes. I wanna have that. I wanna have what they have. It's covetedness. If only we could have this, then we would be happy. If only we could have what she has, what he has, what they have. And it could cause us into a love for the world and to pursue something that's like chasing the wind. And then a pride in one's possessions. I want to show that. I want to show we've arrived. I want to show we're keeping up. I want to show we're cool enough. Whatever it could be. For some, it's I want to show that I'm loving enough. So we'll compromise Christian truth. It's a pride in something that you possess, which could just be the image of being a certain kind of way. And here's a solution. What you have heard from the beginning, he always takes us back. What you've heard from the beginning is to remain in you. If what you've heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. My mentor James Merritt likes to say, the faith that fails at the finish was faulty from the first. If someone finishes away from Christ that claims to be a Christian, I don't mean a mistake or messing up, but they walk into deconversion or apostasy or denying Christ, whatever it might be, it's not that they lost their salvation, John would write, it's that they never actually had it to begin with. Because if we do have it, we'll remain in Christ. And this is the promise that he himself made to us. What is that promise? Eternal life. We're heirs of this promise. We receive this promise, which means I can have joy no matter what's happening in my life. Maybe not happiness. If you're happy when horrible things are happening to you, I'm worried about you. I'm worried about your emotional well-being. However, you can have joy still. Why? Because the promise he made to us, which is eternal life. That our joy can actually be rooted in the fact that what God has accomplished for us in Jesus is secure, and we have assurance of that. He says this in chapter three, see what great love, what great love, this is all this is rooted in, what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children, and he's like, and guess what, church? We are. Like, in Christ, we have been adopted into God's family. We are the children of God. We can take great joy in that. Nobody can take that away from us. They can take a lot of things away from you. They can't take away your status with God. He is your heavenly Father. The Spirit has sealed that. Christ has accomplished that for life. We can find joy in that. Your earthly family on this earth is going to one day be taken away. It is. Your spiritual family can never, ever be taken away. Because you have a status. Let's make sure that our relatives know who Jesus is. Let's use Thanksgiving and Christmas and sitting around the table. Oh, you shouldn't talk about religion. Well, then what the heck are we going to talk about? We are children of God. We need to make sure that we bring this up. I want to fear eternity for people who don't know Jesus more than I fear an awkward 10 minutes over overrated cranberry sauce in a can. Ugh. Sorry, I thought about that for a minute. And here's we're told also that since Jesus is righteous, those who are his will also be righteous. Verse two and three of chapter three. Dear friends, we are God's children now. You don't have to earn it. It's been accomplished. You've been adopted. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. The promises are here now, but the realization of them is in the world to come. 
We know that when he appears, we will be like him. What does that mean? We'll be pure. We'll be righteous because we receive the righteousness of Jesus and he received our sin on the cross. Because we will see him as he is in his glorified state. We're told in Romans we will be glorified also. Eight, chapter 8, verse 30. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We become like him. Dear friends, get some implications of practical life based on these truths. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. That's what fuels our love is that we're part of God's family. The one who does not love does not know God. Like a hateful, spiteful person, we could conclude they don't know the Lord. Why? Because God is love. So if you claim to believe in God and who is love and you don't love and the only rational, logical conclusion is that you don't believe in God. You don't know the Lord. And then we're told this, that God's love is not generic and it's not vague. God's love was revealed. He didn't just say it. He revealed it among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And that word love is thrown around so loosely today. We'll say we love ice cream and, have the same, and in the same context say you love your wife. Or if you don't believe a certain thing or hold to a certain thing or go by certain cultural rules, you're not loving. We're told things like love is love. Like it's, just, it's just thrown around everywhere. And then verse 10 gives an actual understanding of how God defines love. He says love consists in this. Like here it is. It consists in this. I'm going to give it to you. Not that we loved God, and I'm thankful for that because we're not very good at that. But that he loved us. This is how God wants us to understand what it means to love. And he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is how God's love is realized and understood. To understand the love of God, look to a cross. Because dear friends, he's writing compassionately here. He wants them to know there's a, there's a relational element here. If God loved us in this way, guess what we should do now? We must love one another. If God's loved us like this, then the people of God should love each other. Specifically believers, the church should love each other. Like when they see us, they should say, those people love each other. We're like, you know what, not randomly. We love because God first loved us. Because we're not great at loving on our own. But God who is love says love consists in this. That he loved us and sent his son the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Let this be what fuels your love for everyone else. It's not random. It's not vague. It's also not based on feelings. God revealed. To say that God felt love for us? No, even though he does. He has affection towards his people. He certainly does. But for us to understand love, it has to go beyond feelings. It's a decision. It's a choice. When I hear a couple say, we just fell out of love, a married couple, I go, that's impossible. You fell out of feelings. You can't fall out of love because love is a choice. And if he loved us in this way, we're to love one another. See, Christian love is truth-based. It's actually theological. Our understanding of love is more theological than it is emotional in what we are called to do. And I would hope, as we believe these things, our affections would actually grow for God. And our emotional love would grow for each other based on what we believe to be true about the scriptures. So John closes out his first letter with another note of assurance. 
grounding his readers in the identity of Jesus. Because Jesus has come fully in full humanity and has given us an understanding that we might know God, that we might know the true one. Van Ness says this, knowing this, they can resist idols and stand fast in joy and hope. So that's John's hope for us, right under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then you get to 2 John, a really short letter. 2 John was written to warn the church about false teaching and to urge them to continue in love and truth. See, truth is the environment for Christian love, and love is the response of Christians to truth. Let's say that again. Truth is the environment for Christian love, and love is the response of Christians to truth. So he writes this letter, the elder, to the elect lady, which most believe is this church that he's writing to, and her children, so the leadership and the children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because the truth that remains in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. The connectedness you see of love and truth. They're married together. They overlap. They're in sync. See, Christian fellowship, the idea of love, must be based on truth. So we will not increase gospel unity by downplaying truth. And truth, if it's properly held, will always produce love. So if our understanding or holding to a doctrine causes us to be mean-spirited or uncharitable, we could say we're missing the truth. And if in the name of love we overlook, rationalize, or downplay sin, we could say we ourselves are missing our understanding of love. So I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth and keeping with the command we have received from the Father. So now I ask you, dear lady, not as if I were writing you a new command, but one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And these just really uncertain times they were living in, fast forward to our uncertain times, what's certain is God's love for us, so Christians must band together and love each other. He said, this is love. This is how God wants us to understand love. Love consists in this that he died for us. Now how we show love of God is that we walk according to his commands. If we love God and live in darkness, back to 1 John, then we're liars, it says. This is command as you heard it from the beginning, that you walk in love, walk in obedience to God. Many deceivers, so as soon as he's talking about love, he goes right into false teachers. See, calling that out is not at odds with love. He says many deceivers have gone out into the world. He calls them deceivers. They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. He just called people the antichrist. In his letter, and two verses before, he talked about love. They're not at odds. Why? Because of verse eight. Watch yourselves. He cares deeply for the flock. So you don't lose what we have worked for. The churches we've started, the discipleship that's taken place, but you may receive a full reward. You remain in Christ. Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. It's not those holding to truth that are being divisive. It's those who are leaving the truth that are being divisive. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home. That's how serious it is. And do not greet him. For the one who greets him shares in his evil works. Keep walking faithfully, he's saying. 
love one another, and don't tolerate false teaching for a moment because of what it can do to the work of God in the church. Since this false teaching turns people away from God and towards eternal destruction, Christians must not receive it or support it at all. Like helping or encouraging this kind of teaching which leads people to hell is neither nice nor loving. It's not winsome. What ministries we support really matter, that they must be vetted. Good intentions and a sincere spirit are not enough. What we believe matters deeply. Then you get the third John, another really short letter, writing to someone named Gaius. And the theme of this is hospitality. Because again, a hostile world, false teaching creeping in. For those who are, who are walking with God, we must make sure that we're providing gospel hospitality, gospel love, and support for people. He says, dear friend, you are acting faithfully in whatever you do for the brothers and sisters, especially when they are strangers. Like you're welcoming those that you don't know very well into, into your life. They have testified to your love before the church, making an impact on people, and they're talking about it. Like hospitality, a loving, hospitable spirit really is an amazing display of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus entered into our mess. That's the Christian story. But John points out, again, a really short letter, a guy named Diotrephes who is exalting himself, and which is the opposite of hospitality. Hospitality is others-oriented. And he's putting out those who want to support the missionaries. So missionaries are coming to town. The church wants to support them. And Diotrephes is pointing them away from doing that. This is often what happens when pride gets in the way, right? It often leads to rebellion when it's all about me. It leads to hindering God's work. It results in disunity happening in the church family. And a church cannot be healthy when the members seek their own way and are all about themselves. I mean, it's really that simple. But instead, he says, be like this guy over here named Demetrius. We're not told a lot about Demetrius, but he's someone who apparently was doing it the right way. He was an example of being the opposite of Diotrephes. So basically, the theme of 3 John, it's just like 20-something verses, is don't be like that guy, be like this guy. Here's an example of someone who's selfish and self-seeking. Here's an example of someone who's actually really living for the Lord and loving others well through hospitality. Be like Demetrius, don't be like Diotrephes. My uh, senior year in a class in college, I was a biblical studies major, our final exam was writing a commentary on 3 John. So in writing that, I'm like, man, this letter is so, so short, like will I ever actually preach on this? Here we go. So it's basically be like this, not like this. God cares about our posture towards our neighbors, our posture towards strangers, our postures towards outsiders. That we would sh- and also God very much cares about us supporting the work of the Lord through churches and through missionaries. We should be like this one and not like this one. And then get the book of Jude, our last book, before we go to Christmas on the moon. Jude says this, to those who are called, loved by God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. What an awesome intro. That is who we are. We're the called people of God and the love of God the Father, and he's keeping us. We're being kept for Christ till the end. And then the last, the very end, towards the end of Jude, that's the first verse, and then towards the end of Jude, we see the same theme here we see in John, keep yourselves in the love of God. And it's kind of, it's not a contradiction. God is the one who keeps us, and because of that, we want to keep ourselves in his love. So we want to stay anchored in that truth and in that hope with the assurance of knowing it's ultimately not up to us, so I don't do it feeling pressure, I do it out of joy. 
because I know who God is and what he's done for me. He goes, keep yourselves in love of God, and we wait expectantly. Notice that's been a theme if you've been here for a while. If you haven't been here, I'd love for you to catch up online through our podcast, that this looking ahead, looking to heaven, focusing on eternity is a constant theme in the scriptures to a persecuted people. He says, wait expectantly. Why? Because we have assurance. We know, we know without a doubt he will return for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. So that's kind of the two bookends of the book, of the letter, I should say. And then the middle part context is this. Dear friends, you can write with affection here. Although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I just want to talk about the gospel the whole time, he's saying. I just want to celebrate God's love for us and talk about that, but we got some things going on. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. And not just any faith, the one you were entrusted with that was delivered to the saints once for all. I want to just just write you a letter and be like, hey, isn't God awesome? And let's just celebrate our church and celebrate God's love and our missionaries, but I got to write you about this instead. Please contend for the faith. We've been entrusted with this. Leanna Davis says that the brisk epistle of Jude pierces through the foggy myth of personal truth. She adds this, when Jude wrote a confrontational message, he risked being accused of argumentativeness or unnecessary severity. But he knew that his approach, concerns, and hopes for his recipients were grounded in the truth. So he wrote with courage. Here's what he tells them in verse 17. Dear friends, but you dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you In the end times, there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. Don't be surprised by this. Don't be surprised by the godlessness. Don't be surprised they even creep in with their messaging to the church. Now it appears on Instagram, and it's influencers, and it's so many things. These people create divisions and are worldly. They're not having the spirit. But because the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's possessions, we get sucked in. He says, we told you this was going to happen. Please stand firm. Stand firm in who Jesus is. Then he gives this beautiful benediction after some really harsh, and it's some tough words in here. He talks about snatching people out of the fire. Uh, He reminds them of Sodom and Gomorrah, whose sexual sin led them to destruction. Then he gives the church this really beautiful benediction. He says, now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling. Isn't that good news? And to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish, then we're going to be like him, and with great joy. With great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. See, we need to know that's my truth for the future when we have the one who is able to do all that for us. We don't need to pursue my truth. We need to pursue the truth. See, truth beyond our own perspective has been entrusted to believers. It's been given to us. It's been delivered to the saints once and for all. So Jude says we're to contend for the faith that has been once and for all delivered to the believers, to the saints, to the church. So we recognize the the others, the understanding of personal truth is, is not sacred ground. Your truth and my truth is not sacred It's not to be revered. God's truth is to be revered. God's truth demands our loyalty. 
And here Jude is displaying horror over really the, the spectacle, the gospel culture says this, over the spectacle of apostasy and the false teachers who induce it. And the only New Testament passage that surpasses Jude in these traits is Jesus' denunciation of the religious leaders in Matthew 23. The letter begins with the usual soothing notes of the New Testament apostles, remind them who they are in Christ, and the last two verses gives us one of the most moving benedictions in all the New Testament. Joy and joy. And in the middle, let's contend for that joy. Because joy is dependent upon truth. And we must be people in love, out of love for God and love for our neighbors, that contend for joy. Because joy is found in the truth that's been delivered once and all for all to the saints. So I want all of us who know Jesus to pursue joy. And that joy is going to be found in our assurance of what he's done and what he's accomplished for us in Christ. That's why I, I I love Christmas. And go all out. Like, be obnoxious decorator person. I mean, go Christmas music 24-7. Like, we're celebrating what God has done for us. That Jesus has actually come to the world to save sinners. And it was accomplished. So let's love our neighbor and, most importantly, love our God enough where we hold fast to what is true because we believe in these words that are our Bibles, are the very words of life. And that joy is found in us being assured, not of our confidence or our amazing faith, but our amazing Savior and what he has accomplished for us through his death and resurrection. And he will one day come again for his church. Jude says, in the meantime, hold fast, contend. Don't be shocked by outside forces coming in. Hold the line. All for Jesus and for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word and for the scriptures for four letters. Lord, help us to lean on you for assurance. And by lean on you, I mean what you've told us. That love consists in this, not that we love you, but that you loved us. And that Jesus took on the penalty for our sins. We worship the one who rose from the grave. We thank you for the blood of Christ. There's salvation in no one else, and you've made that salvation known to us. So I ask that we will have assurance that people in this room that know the Lord, that they will walk out of here today with full confidence in what you have done. And as a result of that, we'll seek to love you and not love the world and love others and contend for the truth and hold fast. Let us be hospitable. Let us be certain. If anyone here today who doesn't know you, Lord, I ask that you open their eyes to see that you're the exact one you claim to be and their joy can be complete by being reconciled to you, the greatest need we have. Lord, we acknowledge that the worst thing that ever happened to us, whether we realize it or not, has already happened. And that is we were separated from you. We were under the just punishment for our sin. But what great news. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. We are not punished as our sins deserve. So we worship you for that. Keep us from idols. Keep us in the truth. Keep us in love. Let us remain in you and our joy be complete. In the name of Jesus, amen.